Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, John Smybert. John is a 40-year veteran with the large IT vendors, IBM, Fujitsu, NCR, and Unisys. He's been selling large, complex deals to to enterprise uh, clients for the last 40 years. And he's also the co-author of the fabulous book, The Wentworth Prospect. Now, today we're going to be exploring why people in leadership and management are focused on the wrong end of the problem because they're trying to focus on managing outcomes as opposed to the inputs, the behaviors. They're not questioning whether their sales process is working, whether it aligns with their typical customer journey. And they're not really doing a good job of helping develop their salespeople to enter into proper discovery conversations with customers that drive the middle of the funnel. And John is a huge advocate of disruptive selling. It's helping the customer think differently about their problem. John, welcome. Good day, Marcus. Good to see you. Likewise. All the way from down under. You're looking great up there, but you're looking cold. (laughs) Well, you're looking distinctly warmer than I am. So, John, um, first of all, would you mind giving us uh, 60 seconds on your background, please? Well, I guess you summarised it. I've worked for those uh, four very large IT corporates uh, in sales leadership roles over 40 years. Well, originally as a salesperson, but the majority of the years in sales leadership. And then I, um, 19 years ago, 2004, set up a consulting operation around sales and account management and helping organisations change the way they sell, change the way they engage with their clients and so on. And I've been having a ball ever since. <laughs> okay. you, you will have gathered that from reading the book. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And uh... Tell me this, why is it that so much around sales at the enterprise level is fixated on the transaction instead of the engagement? It's a really good question. When I talk to my clients and talk particularly CEOs and sales leaders, and and I just ask the simple question, what do you measure that you can manage? And they start telling me, well, we measure our sales, uh, number of sales we get, the size of sales, uh, blah, 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 a whole lot of stuff about that, revenue and profit and so on. I said, okay, can you manage that? Oh, yeah, we manage that. How? And there's a blank look on the face. Oh, we have reports. You know, we have pumped dozens of reports out of our CRM and our financial system to see where the holes are and what we're not doing right so we can change our behaviour and so on. I said, well, really? So, yeah, that changes behaviour. And after we go through this sort of dialogue, you know, generally they sit back and the, the aha starts coming. Aha. You can't measure outcomes. Sorry, you can measure outcomes. You can't manage outcomes. You can only manage activity. And you know that you're measuring the wrong thing if you have to put a lot of brute force and expense behind it, typically. The amount of effort and the amount of time and money and warm bodies that go behind the typical drive for growth. And everyone's fixated on achieving this, you know, these levels of continuous growth, many of which are almost unattainable or certainly unsustainable if you want to build a really rock-solid business. My question is, why the rush? Well, shareholders are driving a lot of that, of course. Um, the share market, bonuses for executives, a uh, whole host of things. And it's important. I, I'm I don't think we can belittle the need for growth and development in organisations that will drive growth. I think that's important. We need, a, we need a growth mindset, but we need to understand how growth occurs. And it doesn't occur because we set a higher target. It doesn't <laughs> occur we say, well, we need this outcome. Now everybody's got to work harder to get that outcome. And if, if especially grows, over a sign quota. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, saying, look, we want a 20% increase in uh, business this next year, so you're going to get a 25% increase in your quota, will make sense if you put a strategy behind it and you and you focus right back on what activity we need to drive it and then coach people to achieve quality activity, and then maybe you can get the 25% growth. If all you say is we've got to get 25% growth, guys, Go out there and work harder, and we're going to measure how many orders you bring in. Ain't going to work. Then you put that on steroids when you bring external money in, and then they apply the triple, triple, double, double, double model. 
because instead of getting 25%, they're trying to drive 300%, 300%, 200%, 200%. Now, like I said, the the issue is about creating a sustainable business that has legs that mean that it can weather the storms and isn't going to crumble. But the objective appears to be get out as fast as you can and sell it to some sucker so it's no longer your problem and to hell with the outcome. Let's be a little careful here, Marcus. I'm working with an organisation right now that is achieving 300 to 500% growth every year for the last four or five years. They're a manufacturer of uh, charges for electric cars, very very high-speed charges, you know, like mm, petrol wow. pumps. And, of course, yeah. the growth in that industry, if, if they can't maintain three or four or 500% increase every year, they're losing market share. Yeah. Right? So it really depends on what industry you're in and how that industry is moving and, and what role you're trying to play in that industry. A really good measure it's not one you can manage, but but you need to work, know where you stand. It is a measure of market share. If that particular market is stagnant, then you can't really drive to 100% growth in business. You can only drive your 10%, and that's only by getting share from your competitor. Whereas if you're in a high-growth business like the one I just talked about, then you've got to be making 300% plus just to maintain market share. I absolutely agree and accept what you said. My question is, when investors come in and they assume that every business fits that model, now, applying that to a business that can't sustain the growth, can't recruit the people, can't build the channels at that pace, is simply going to drive it into the wrong kind of behaviours because people will pay lip service to the measure or they'll, they'll focus on the measurements. They won't focus on the intended outcome which is to build a business that makes profit and is here in three, five, 10 years' time. If your intention is just to sell it, then I think one of the challenges is you have to ask yourself, yourself the question, are we really doing right by our people? Are we doing right by our customers, if that's our intent? And I see so many organizations that seem to have that wrong intent, and it worries me. And I'd like to see if there is a way that we can actually turn the uh, turn the tables a bit. Um, it's like you and, worry too much, Marcus. Well, I, I, I see the, the reason I worry, and I've lost all my hair, is because I see so many people's careers being burnt out. I see the catastrophic levels of waste. You know, any other department that ran at a 97 to 99% failure rate, uh, the leaders would be fired. But that seems to be accepted as normal within our industry? Well, in, in, in some, some organisations. Some, let's be careful. A lot of organisations are doing it very well. A lot aren't. And a lot have got a lot to learn about how to manage a business effectively, how to manage a sales force and, and achieve the outcomes that they need to achieve to sustain their, their business, to grow their business and so on. So, so let's focus on the ones that are doing it well. Tell us what, re, what good really looks like. Let's start with the leadership then. Okay, uh, it's not a simple answer, but there's a, yeah. let, me, let me list a few things. One is the leaders need to be leaders, and the leaders need to empower their people. Leaders aren't there. I hate, you know, a lot of people talk about the carrot and stick and all that sort of stuff. The leaders are there to, to provide the vision, to walk the talk, and to engage effectively with their people, to give their people confidence, to, to, um, to support their people, and so on. Their people are the ones that make the difference to the customers. Uh, and so they, they need to be fully supported in doing that. And there's a whole host of things one, we, one needs to do that. And we're going to get and talk about some of that detail. What I see too often, uh, and the book says it, I think, very well, if you remember, we read through the book. We, we um, had two or three different leaders in the book. And uh, one was horrific, <laughs> uh, driving, uh, driving activity with the, with the stick. Maybe occasional carrot, um, but it was more like yeah, you know, yeah, you'll keep beating your, you with a carrot. <laughs> yeah, beating you with a carrot. You'll keep your job if you get this order, right? Um, <laughs> that sort of stuff. And and yet we presented some really good, or one in particular, one really good leader, I believe, in the way she uh, really engaged properly with her team and so on. Let me tell you a story. When, when I first started selling, I had a sales matter. I, I was struggling. I've got to admit it, you know, I'm 22, 23 years old. I was struggling. Of course you uh, were. 
Yeah, really struggling. And I was lacking confidence and, you know, I was doing cold calls. And back in those days, cold calls were walking down the street, knocking on every business down the street. I was selling to the industrial sector. Uh, and, uh, you know, I remember times I'd just get in my car and I'd make two calls and then I'd sit in the car and, oh, what am I doing, you know? Um, <laughs> and, I, and I had a manager just take me apart and said, aside and, and recognised that I had a real problem and said, John, let me tell you something right up. Right. I have utmost confidence you will become a great salesperson, right? So let's work together on that. And then we, we, we started working through what the issues were and he had, you know, he coached me and, and, and the, the talk about big issues in the, in the corporations. You know, the, the lack of coaching in this day and age by sales managers, the mid-level sales managers, Oh. astounds me in some organisations. They're managing the business by reports, numbers. It's all about the numbers and, then, and the managers are managing up and forget, forgetting to manage and coach down. That comes all the way from the top. So if the CEO is managing by the numbers and using the stick and so on, that's going to flow all the way down the organisation. It's got to be turned on its head. The CEO... Here's a, 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 I think, a perfect way of looking at it. The CEO is at the bottom bottom of the org chart. He's supporting everybody, right? Absolutely. And then how do you support the, the guys just above me and how they support those and how do we support the people that are facing the customer all the way up through the chain? Instead, we had this hierarchical structure that everybody sees that we're trying to get away from and so on, but it's still hierarchical structure. And the, the, man, the CEO sits at the top and dictates down and says, I want to see these numbers. I want to see those numbers. I'm going to sit in a board report. Give me those numbers. And what do the sales managers do? They run around with reports and numbers, and that's not managing a business. Just to build on what John is saying, there's a study that was conducted by the London School of Economics, sponsored by the uh, British Enterprise Industry and Strategy Department, uh, so it's a, a government department. There was uh, 62 companies where they implemented operational coaching. So operational coaching is coaching on the job, in the moment, at the point of need. And the difference in performance by teams of managers who implemented an operational coaching management style, within six months, the average ROI was 74x. So there you are. You can grow your company by you know, 200%, 300%. <laughs> you, you can, but only if you do it sustainably. And that's my point. Of course. The, the problem is if you're driving growth for the sake of growth, as opposed to gri- driving growth in order to meet the objective, which is to serve your customer and provide a great work environment for your people and to be a good partner and be a valuable asset to your community. If you don't involve all of those elements, then chances are you're going to be just focused on the money. Now, that taints, uh, that permeates the rest of the organization because it drives that kind of behavior, which is focused on stuff you can't control. It's focused on uh, the wrong end of the problem. And the net result of that is that you drive the wrong marketing behavior. It's just very, very noisy. You drive the wrong prospecting behavior where it's uh, you know, pitch and slam because the volume of hang-ups is terrifying. And the waste, you know, do you know it takes nearly 3,500 to 5,500 dials to get to a second meeting on average in this current environment? And then managers and leaders are taking full deal cycles out of the next quarter without thinking about the hangover and the tariff that creates. So you end up with this spiral of violence where there's always you're always playing catch up quarter by quarter. So you're never going to make it. And I've seen companies where 85% of salespeople are not hitting quota. It's, yeah, there's some terrific numbers out there. And there's also the... The, the number that concerns me greatly and depends which research you look at, but they're saying the average uh, tenure of a salesperson in a B2B sales role is 15 months before they change company or move out or whatever. And to me, I don't know how you get your people productive in much less than 12 months after bringing them into the company. Mm. Uh, and, and you're basically, you're saying as soon as they become productive, they leave. 
and that's an endemic problem across so many B2B sales organisations. Um, uh, Dr. Phil McGovern, um, Phil McGowan uh, over at the University of Portsmouth did his PhD on this topic. And what was really terrifying is that the salespeople typically hit their full stride at the end of year three in the role. That's when they really hit their stride. So almost no organization is creating the conditions to allow their salespeople to perform at their optimum capability. Managers don't know how to get their uh, people there. So I really want to understand how we can get the next generation of leaders thinking differently because um, thankfully, the boomers are on your way out. My generation are rapidly on your heels. And the next two generations have something that we don't. You and I had to accommodate technology and bring it into our lives. Whilst millennials and Gen Zs and subsequent generations, it's just been part of their lives. They don't hold it with the same level of awe. Now, I still marvel that you and I can have an immediate conversation when you're 16,000 miles away from me. And to me, that is, that's magic. To my kids, it's, yeah, whatever. Yeah, there's that. There's also the awareness that the younger generations have about the world about them. Now, a lot of people say, you know, the, the young generation in phones and all that sort of stuff. But the reality is, they really do understand the world about them. They, they're looking for organisations to work for that are empathetic to not just them, uh, to uh, uh, diverse uh, different races, uh, sexes and all that sort of stuff, bringing people together into a team. I was just talking with a client of, uh, an old colleague of mine, in actual fact, the other day. I'm running a, running a you know, breakfast um, workshop for uh, sales leaders on the 25th of March, and, and she's one of the panel. I was talking, what are you going to talk about? It was all about this subject, you know, people, how do you get them, you know, comfortable in the organisation? How do you make, uh, help them become top performers and so on, right from hiring through to long term? And she started talking about, well, diversity in this day and age is absolutely critical and the people and the young people coming through are very, very keen on seeing a, a workplace which, uh, which embraces diversity. And so we've got a strategy, instead of, trying to get people into the business to fit our culture, let them change our culture. So the basic thing is as people come into the business, they add to the culture and we don't try and force them into our culture. Now, you think about that on a wider scale, it's a whole change mindset. You need to talk about you and I and the way we used to think about management. Executives these days need to be able to open up the organisation to allow people to actually drive change in the culture, to, to, to be culture, a culture ad, not a culture fit. Hallelujah. Well, again, I've done a series of podcasts on the topic around diversity, equity, and inclusion. What's really interesting is the number of organizations that have gone down the path of recruiting for diversity, but firing for not fitting in. And they make it impossible for people to stay. And this is, uh, again, critical because if you, if you are currently struggling with attraction and retention of talent, then you need to wake up because the reality is not only is it the right thing to do morally, but it's brilliant for your business because having range in an organization and a management layer that is vulnerable enough to let other people have a voice and encourages them to do so, empowers them to do so, frees up an enormous uh, creative change wave. In that particular study with the LSE, the organization that delivered it is a company called Notion. Uh, they've developed this operational coaching management style program so they can deliver it at scale simultaneously. So they can deliver it to hundreds or thousands of managers. Now, a billion-dollar software company taking 32 managers through the program Within six months, because of the way the learning journey is structured, documented $17.5 million pounds back on a $35,000 or thereabouts investment in six months. Now, that was the impact that releasing the management capability of coaching on the job in the moment when people need it, instead of letting stuff slide. 
The other aspect to this, which I'm really excited about, is there are technologies out there like mobile practice and mind tickle that allow you to take moments and micro coach and micro practice. Because again, one of the things that I've seen go by the wayside is those little moments, those 10 or 30 or 45 seconds where a salesperson struggles and they can throw the whole sale. And we can practice that and we can help them practice that. But far, far too few managers create those interventions because they're too busy doing useless stuff like upward delegation, doing the job that they're paying other people to do, supervising and micromanaging and reworking. If they taught their people how to do this stuff, they wouldn't have to do any of that stuff. Yeah, as a friend of mine, Tony Hughes, uh, very regularly says the weakest link in the revenue chain is, is middle sales management. And for exact reason you're talking about, but it's not... It's not the middle sales management's fault. It's the organisational fault. It's a leadership fault. And the leaders drive the wrong behaviour in the sales managers and don't help them understand how to do the, the operational coaching that you're talking about. And therefore, they become numbers managers. And, and you know, it's time, Mr. Salesperson, want to sit down and go through your pipeline. Why is this? Why is that? Why is that? You, know, you need to you need to move this deal forward. I want to come back next next week or next month, and I want to see that progressing. Well, that's not coaching. That, that, that's, you know, if I was a sales guy and I heard that every week, I'd be leaving your company as well. Absolutely. And what but what's even more frightening is that within um, for, I think it's forty two percent, no, thirty percent of new hires leave within forty two days. What a waste. Because <laughs> they've put you on probation, they've realised the manager's an ass. The the job is not the one you sold me, and it's impossible to succeed. It's it's crazy. Okay, I, I, I have a challenge, which I believe that what we should be doing is creating a management apprenticeship. And I think from day one of hiring a new salesperson, we should be preparing them for the next job in two or three years' time. And we should be putting them on this pathway so if they want to move into management, then get them involved in interviews, get them involved in uh, running meetings, get them involved in coaching and mentoring the next person in. This kind of stuff, it's not difficult to do. It just requires a bit of thinking. You, you, you hit a little uh, little hot point there for me. Um, let me take you back to that story about the sales manager who told me he had faith in me and let's just work together on it wasn't much later, it's probably only nine months later, he said, you're doing really well and you should start looking at where your career is because I think you'd make a great manager. And maybe not for two or three or four years, but I think you'd make a great manager. And he started coaching me in and, and got me to coach other salespeople. And this was after, uh, in the company, I'd only been in the company for 12 months at that stage. Next minute, I'm coaching other young salespeople. And you know, it was very quickly after that, I became a manager and, and I guess you know some of my people would probably say, "Hey, you you got faults, John." But you know, I think one of the things I was very good at was listening to my people, understanding where their challenges and issues are, and coaching them. And that's not telling them; it's helping them to come to their own realization of ways in which they can address the issue they've got and do it differently. And then let's go and you go and try that. Take and, and maybe you'll have a practice at it. So many people say, "John, don't equate bloody." Selling to sports or, or coaching to you know, sports coaching. The fact is, we can learn a lot about sports, and we forget about it in in the business environment. A coach, a sales manager, is a coach. There's no doubt about it. Now, if, if a sales manager doesn't think he's a coach, he should get out of the role. That's his. That's his or her primary role. And if you're a coach, you need to be able to be talking to your people regularly, getting them to try different things practice. And that's one thing I hate in sales is we practice on the customer. We should be taking time aside to practice, to role play on a regular basis. And that's a, a role, again, of the sales manager to make sure that's happening. And sometimes to, to, to be part of the role play, but also have other salespeople and others role play with each other. And once you've practiced a lot, then you go back in and you're much more effective with the customer and you learn a lot more. There's a wonderful quote from Benjamin Brewster. In theory, theory and practice are the same. In practice, they're not. And I think one of the challenges here is that very often 
organizations put people through training and then they forget it. And unless there is reinforcement and practice afterwards, it's not going to be embedded and you're not going to see performance improve. And the evidence from Gartner is that one hour of coaching per rep, per month following training delivers a 36x higher return on investment than when you don't. Now, let's face it, 36x on top of a negligible improvement is not great. So I do question the value of training without coaching. And I have a a doubt that training from the feeding from a fire hose is a good idea as well. But that's another topic. But that whole piece around practice is so crucial. I've got a program I call Authentic Selling. It's a change program. It's uh, typically I run across about nine months in most organizations, sometimes 12, 15 months, depending on what we're trying to do. And you're absolutely right. First of all, from the top down, they have to understand the change they need to go through. What's a new way of selling as an organization? What's a new way of delivering value to customer? How are we going to go back and get everybody to agree that's the way? Then you put your plan together to start driving change in behavior across the organization. Behavior change doesn't happen overnight. So if you run a two or three or four day training program, you're right. You know, in two or three weeks, everything's forgotten. It's not being put into practice. Everybody goes back to their old habits. So you do need reinforcement. That's why we make it a, uh, and, and to, by the way, the best thing that happened to our clients and us was COVID. Mm. Because instead of flying all the salespeople into, into head office and running them through, you know, two, three, four days of training and, you know, everything else, um, they said, John, what are we going to do now? COVID's hit, you know, how are we going to develop our people? And I had a whole lot of clients lined up to do training and so on. So we very quickly said, all right, we're just going to break this program down into a whole lot of two-hour sessions. We're going to do it on Zoom or Teams or whatever the customer uses. Uh, we'll use a few other online tools that will make it work. And now the reinforcement program that runs over eight months following the training that's normally driven by the sales managers very poorly and it's really hard, now they're running effectively because that's run in between each two-hour session over eight months. And it's just you see this behavioural change happening. COVID's been wonderful in a lot of areas for changing behaviour. Well, what it's done in many ways is it's brought us forward 10 years in terms of digitisation. It's forced the pace of change within the collaboration and cooperation market uh, for software. I'm really excited by what's going to come off the back of the last couple of years where people have been forced to try and collaborate and think differently. And what, in my mind, it's created the conditions for, which I'm most excited about, is a different way of doing business. I'm excited by the burgeoning of ecosystems, especially selling into the enterprise space. It's where adjacent providers who don't necessarily compete, there may be some overlap, but they sell to the same target audience. And now they're starting to coordinate. They're starting to have primary quarterly messages and secondary monthly messages that they will write to and produce content to. And then they bring each other's networks to. And they're cooperating in terms of bringing their networks to joint uh, webinars. And they're co-elevating each other. And they're co-developing and synthesizing new solutions by thinking differently that gives them the range and diversity uh, that we were talking about a moment ago. And so I'm really excited because that's going to push those businesses ahead of the companies that hold on to their old ways. And that's going to be really exciting because the the disruption and the change is going to, uh, I think it's heralding a really exciting uh, new way of doing business where you've got four generations, maybe even five working in a company. You've got incredibly uh, distributed and diverse range of people all over the globe looking at many eyes on the same problem. That, to me, means that we're going to start coming up with elegant, wise solutions. Absolutely right. Yeah, it's this is a little bit of a different story, but uh, uh, talks about how improved ways of collaboration can change things. I founded an organisation called Sales Masterminds some years ago, and it's a group of yeah, 16, 17 sales uh, consulting professionals like myself we're all competitors, we compete with each other, but we we started meeting together and looking at how together can we 
improve the professionalism in the B2B sales world because together we can do more than separately was the idea. So we struggled with that for a while. We put a number of things in place and, yeah, we, we made some good um, good headway in, in various areas, but it was always hard work. COVID hit and I just set up a standard. Once a month we're going to have drinks at 4.30 on a Friday, you know, each with their own glass and bottle of wine in front of, uh, in front of Zoom and said, right, now let's talk about what we're doing, what we're struggling with, and we'll talk about a, a major subject each, each month Suddenly, this group started working together like nothing on earth. Now, what's the difference? Now, before we were trying to get together, we were sitting around tables. You know, we had some people in Melbourne, some people in Sydney, one or two in New Zealand, and so on. It was just hard work. Now we were forced to sit there looking at each other in, on, in Zoom and really look at how we can help each other drive improved professionalism in the sales world. And it was magic. So, did was that the result of um, COVID causing us to move to Zoom to make this, you know, whatever it was? That, yeah, if we can get groups of diverse people working together, it's amazing what you can come up with. Well, the, when we start to look at the landscape that's ahead, we're, we're looking at a VUCA landscape. So it's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. We've got a range of things that have already happened with the pandemic. Now we've got this knock-on effect with the great resignation, the great retirement. We've got supply chain issues. There's talk of inflation. We've got nuclear war around the corner. And this is a very, very difficult time for managers and uh, leaders to navigate. And now is the time for them to not uh, think in the old ways of competing or reluctantly coexisting or arm's-length collaboration. I think now is the time for us to really embrace a different way of working. We need to think differently and we need to think about the collective good. And I'm not, I'm no hippie, as you can tell, you know, clearly by the head. But the challenge here is how do we get groups of companies clustered around specific problems, working with customers, working together in terms of developing a bigger pie? The really interesting thing with the way technology is moving, and uh, if you if you've got a bit of vision, you can actually make the whole pie bigger instead of just try, trying to take a, small, a bigger piece from a shrinking pie. This raises all sorts of questions, um, particularly in the sales world. And there's been a lot of proponents that I've worked with, members of my sales masterminds that have been saying things for quite a while, things like, should we have an individual quota and people played commission on achieving that quota for an individual? Because doesn't that drive the wrong behaviour both within our own organisation, I'm going to I'm going to control my territory. I'm going to not let anybody else in. I'm going to do my thing, and of course, if I'm driven by commission, I'm going to close the order with the customer. It's all about closing the order rather than how can I help the customer achieve an outcome. So yeah, should we pay, pay commission because that tends to drive the wrong behaviours. The whole host of other aspects of selling, team selling. All the old old guys that I talked to and that I've grown up in the in the sales world in those four companies I talk, I, yeah. I have these conversations all the time, and and a lot of them will never change their thinking, but some are really starting to think about it and saying, okay, if we're getting this diversity in the sales force, one person on their own shouldn't be the only person selling into an organisation. How can we get them collaborating more effectively so we drive more value for the customer, so the customer is much more delighted? You know, and talk about wallet share and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's all about delivering in, or helping the customer achieve valuable outcomes. And, and if we got one person that's leading and then they've got some pre-sales people supporting them, they're, they're in a very narrow field and they'll miss the opportunities. I cannot believe I've been hearing these uh, words. They're like music to my ears because I'm having this exact debate. And it, there is a huge amount of pushback. I believe that commission and compensation needs to be changed so that it forces us to align with the customer and their journey because their journey begins long before we ever invade their space with our uh, noisy marketing and irritating outreach. And it uh, carries on long after they bought. They have to live with it. They have to use the product. They have to administer it. They have to renew it. They have to maintain it. And they have to live with the consequences of it. So I believe that compensation should reflect that. I think that we should 
pay a little for the new logo win, and that's good. It's it's definitely worth uh, rewarding. But marketing and sales were involved in that. Then we should pay for when they hit certain consumption or adoption levels. We should pay for the third renewal. That would be fantastic. And we should definitely pay a big chunk of change to the entire team when the customer reports they hit the objective that they intended when they invested in in renting our solution. And the reality is in this day and age, more and more businesses are as a service, whether it's software as a service or just servicing on its own, no matter what it is. And, and when we close that first order with a customer, and I use the, the word close advisedly, if you've read the book and, and we have the advanced framework and the C in advance is all about commit, not close, yeah. and it's a mutual commitment. And that's sort of mentality we need to have. It's all about mindshare. That, what you and I are talking about now is actually getting the mind share right across an organisation to make sure diversity works effectively, collaboration works effectively, and where we've got the right mind share in the way we engage with our client. And that's all about helping the client achieve valuable outcomes and working with the client on doing that, not working to sell the client a product. If, if our, our whole mindset is to sell a, a, a client a product, then we might as well go out of business now. We're not going to drive the sort of value the client can get and we will, won't will win anywhere near, near as much business as what we would otherwise. So it, it's getting that mindset right. I've lost my train of thought, but basically that's um, that's the way we've got to go. And collaboration and teaming and attracting diversity and, and helping people get a culture add to our organisation rather than getting them to fit to our organisation, all the sorts of things that will drive amazing change in corporations. Well, this then raises another really interesting series of questions around how we go about planning our future workforce, because I certainly feel that in the enterprise world, we need to be much more closely aligned with our customers. And I think finding salespeople who are less transactional and more problem solvers, who are great listeners, who are people who aren't afraid to operate at whichever level they find themselves and challenge, and they're not attached to the outcome. But that's a very different kind of salesperson to the majority and what passes for great in sales for the majority of leaders. You know, we've got to be a little bit careful because most salespeople I know, given the right coaching development framework, collaborative teamwork, all that sort of stuff, can actually transition from product salespeople and even solution salespeople to whatever you want to call it. Now, I call it, call it disruptive selling in a very positive way because customers want to be disrupted. But it comes down to the very, you're right, there's some really simple things like listening and so on. But it's talking, having that that dialogue with a customer about what currently is and what might be. They're the two questions, what currently is and what might be. Now, there's a whole framework that we talk and we teach our people to use to, to go through those dialogues. But you have all that dialogue about what currently is and what might be without ever having a dialogue about our own products, offerings and services or whatever. And that's the mindset change. We're there to collaborate with the customer. We're there to consult with the customer. We're there to help the customer through a thinking journey. As you say early on, really understand the problem and then take them through a thinking journey of what might be the disruptive thinking. And again, not without any conversation about the product. And yet that is probably the biggest challenge older, I'll get away, longer term salespeople have where they just lived and breathed. Uh, We're going to identify the problem. We're going to show the customer a solution and close. So when they ask a question, tell me more about this problem. Do you have this issue? And the customer, yeah, we have that issue. And this is what, let me tell you how our customer addresses that, Mr. Customer. And you're still in discovery. You don't raise your product. Well, at that stage, because now I'm, all I'm doing is demonstrating I my intent is to sell you a product, Mr. Customer, not help you get to an outcome. So this then raises a point that I always make with anyone I'm working with in sales, which is that how you show up, your intent is the single most important starting point. If you don't come with the right intent, which is, can I help? 
And if I can, am I the best person to help? Because the way I define selling is selling is helping your customer make the best decision for themselves, both for now and the future, whether it involves you or not. And selling should be the most noble thing you do. If you behave like that, then it is a noble act. But the problem is that I think selling is done superficially. And the best salespeople are ones who help the customer feel safer with them than without them when they're making their decisions, when they're trying to think about their problem. And that's a quality that really needs to be nurtured and recruited for and then developed. But it does. I'm a great believer in people can change. So the issue to me is not the individual salesperson. The issue to me is the organisation and the intent of the organisation and the way in which they manage or, or lead and, and drive thinking within the organisation. And, and, that, and, and, and that has to be driven from top down. So the behaviour of the managers are right in front of the salesperson. The salesperson realises now I have the right support to go out and be a consultant with the customer. But if they come back to the customer and the, and the manager says, all right, how big is the opportunity? When, when is it going to close? What's that demonstrated? No interest in the middle of the funnel. No, That's no interest in and, and all you're going to do is drive the behaviour back to the client where the, where the salesperson is going to be surreptitiously asking how big, big is it and when, when is it going to close? And that's not the behaviour we need. We need collaborative behaviour with the client. Wonderful example of this was um, the, my old AE. Um, and then I, uh, when I was an SDR back in um, you know, the, the early 2000s, and I brought him into a company I was CRO for as senior VP of sales. And he just closed a $100 million deal with BP. And he took it from a $5 million deal to $100 million. He did it through collaboration. He identified the partners who had the C-suites here, and he found a way of making it relevant to them. And then he helped them to sell it internally. And in 12 months, he took it from five to 100 million. That's the power of collaboration. That's smart selling. But the very, very few uh, people are given the breathing space to do the planning, the practicing, the rehearsal, the debriefing, the, the pre-morteming, the post-morteming, all this so stuff. Everything becomes second nature around the intent for the client. That's what it's got to become. And that's the, the change program we try and drive with it will help our customers drive in their organisation. And we're very quick to test the executives because if the executives aren't fully behind that and really understand it, it's never going to happen in the organisation. That's where it comes from. So driving behavioural change and go back to the individual, I believe most salespeople can change. Older guys like me might find it harder than younger lasses and lads, but uh, it, it's people can change if the organisation is helping them go through that change. And they need to trust their leadership. And that's one of the things that I think is very lacking in far too many organisations because they have little or no reason to trust leadership, which has uh, essentially driven them towards massive activity with very scant reward or recognition. My big push here is really to develop that middle management layer, put people onto an apprenticeship. You know, the, the, one of the real values of learning to coach as a seller is that you teach once, you learn twice. Uh, in order to, uh, to coach, you need to be able to see things through a different perspective. And that gives you depth and range, which makes you a better seller anyway. There's great advantage in that. And then encourage people to have a voice. I think your managers in my book have five core functions. Hire the best people. Get the best out of them. Make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. Help them clear the roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from above, and then give them a voice. Because more often than not, they will have the answers, and they'll be far more elegant than any manager will come up with on their own. Giving, giving them a voice is really tough for a lot of uh, organisations, but if they can get to that point, you're absolutely right. And um, once you give, give your people a voice, you've got to be ready to listen to that voice uh, and take action based on what you're hearing that voice tell you, tell, tell you as an executive. And too many uh, executive senior leaders with um, 
due deference to that word, won't listen to the voice. They say, I'm, I'm, you know, they have all the right words. We're going through a change. We're going to have behavioural change. And we've got the right intent coming, you know, and all that sort of stuff, the right culture. And then the first time they're put to test, their behaviour indicates, yeah, we're never going to change. <laughs> and the minute people see that, the voice closes, the voice stops, you, you know, fear takes on. Uh, you know, and we've got been fearful to speak up. We now just toe the line. We do the right thing until, until we decide, yeah, you know, this is not the organisation I want to work for and I jump ship. And unfortunately, there's too many organisations around like that, so we jump ship into another one that tends to be the same and then we jump ship into another one. And so you get the 15-month um, tenure, average tenure in a B2B sales role. I don't want to be too negative. I think there is a lot of change happening and it takes a long time to drive change. So there's a lot of organisations are really moving well in the, in the right direction. The beauty of all of this is actually there are more elegant, more effective solutions if you look at the right end of the problem. If you look at the places where you have the most leverage and you look at the root causes, the problem is that most solutions are downstream and focused on the symptom. I look at the 8,000 MarTech vendors and I look at the 1,500 sales enablement vendors and that tells me no one's got an answer to the wicked problem of selling because it's not a simple problem. It's a wicked problem. It's made up of parallel problems operating interdependently. And if you change one of them without adjusting the others, you mess an already messed up system and push it further out of kilter. That's why so many of these tinkerings just create more work and create more friction for the salesperson and the customer. So the challenge here is how do we fix this in a way that is elegant and lasting? Well, the CBI says that if you can adjust nine key management behaviors by only 7%, that is enough to turn the UK economy around and recover from the effects of the pandemic. A 7% improvement in nine key areas, one of which, critically, is coaching on the job. We're going around in circles here, Marcus. Where are we, yeah, where are we going? We're in agreement. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, John, to wrap up, um, if you had a golden ticket and you were able to go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot John, age 23, who knew everything and was invincible and immortal. What one choice bit of advice would you give him? It's got to be around um, so much more around engaging more effectively with clients, working for the client, not to get the order out of the client. To be a leader, every salesperson needs to be a leader. They need to understand how to help or drive. I, I like the words how to take a customer through a thinking journey in a very constructive and positive way. Uh, and in, in doing so, you will disrupt the thinking of the customer and every customer worth their salt wants to have their thinking disrupted because they live in their paradigm. And, and sometimes they need the right sort of person to come along and ask the right sort of questions to get them out of that paradigm into something that's really going to be a much better framework for them to operate their business in. To me, that's what selling is. It's not hey, feature function benefit, this product's going to drive some benefits to you, Mr. Customer. It's about, hey, how can you change your business to drive much more value in your business? And as you say, whether, whether our product is part of that or not, that's the dialogue we're having and we need to have to help the customer think through a way in which they can get better outcomes in their business. Now, obviously, if we're not going to be the, able to help them in achieving those outcomes, we need to qualify out pretty quickly because you know, we've got to go and find a client where we can help them achieve the outcomes that they're looking at. But if you if you if you open the door early enough in an organisation, and, and that's what I mean by aligning to their buying journeys, it means we need to be in there talking to them when the status quo is being upset, not when. They've gone through and studied the problem they've got and identified how they might address that problem. Well, now we better go and buy, buy a product or service and they, they'll start talking to us as salespeople. Now, we're way too late in there and we, we can't help the customer in their thinking journey. So for me, it's getting in very early. I'm a great believer, by the way, that we need less opportunities in our pipeline, not more in most organisations. Because if we're doing it right, we will end up getting a lot more commitments, a percentage of commitments on, on the opportunities we've got in our pipeline. 
by doing what we're talking about rather than in their product selling or even what solution selling. Solution selling, and there's a lot of benefits to solution selling, but it's not what I'm talking about. We've got to get beyond what I believe people think of as solution selling into true thought leadership. I think Mark Twain said it beautifully. He said, your eyes won't see when your imagination is out of focus. And as sellers, our job is to help the customer have a more focused imagination and to see the art of the possible, to imagine a a better world, because they don't pay us for the product. They rent the outcome, and they'll only rent it for as long as it's still relevant. And I think far too few salespeople really understand how to play the medium to long game in their pipeline generation, because what they should be doing is focusing 80% of their prospecting activity on this, you know, two or three quarters out and start really focus on that, not to try and transact now, but to transact in a year or 18 months. And if you build your pipeline that way, and as a leadership and management, you give your salespeople the breathing space to do that, they never have feast and famine. It, it just goes away because you've got you've built enough coverage within the accounts and you've gone deep and wide. So you're relevant. So you, you say it much better than me, Marcus. Let's bring, bring this around full circle. Uh, that, that's the reason we wrote the Wentworth Prospect, to really, as a sales novel, a story, uh, to demonstrate what you and I are just talking about, what the right way to do things, the right way to engage with clients, Uh, the right way to take clients through a thinking journey, disrupt their thinking and so on, and help them make a decision that's going to be of value to them. And in doing so, hopefully we we set it up so that we can help them with that decision by providing some product or services. But that's the the end game, not the uh, mid game. So, John Smebert, thank you so much for this. It's been a really insightful conversation. And I would love to go into more detail with you around the advance process the next time, if we may. If we may. In the meantime, how can people get hold of you? Uh, LinkedIn's best. Just send me a note on LinkedIn or, or send me a, a connection request on LinkedIn with a message. If I don't get a message, I don't know who's coming to me and why, then I typically just ignore them. So um, just say, um, I heard you're on Marcus's show want to connect and have a discussion, no problems at all. I'll connect. Excellent. John Smybert, thank you. Marcus, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please do like, comment, share, and subscribe. Tag somebody and for God's sake, get the book, The Wentworth Prospect, read it, give it to your team, make sure they read it, and then discuss it and maybe implement some of the ideas like taking care of your customers, coverage, planning, strategizing, rehearsing, and debriefing and other stuff. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.